Hey y'all, this is Jim Rohner, Deacon here at Forefront Church, flying solo on this interview with Daryl Davis. And now if the name Daryl Davis is somewhat familiar to you, uh, it may be because of his music career. For the first half of his adult life, he was a professional musician, touring and performing with musicians such as Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. But if you're anything like me, then you were made familiar with Daryl through the documentary Accidental Courtesy, Daryl Davis Race in America. And that documentary focuses on what has been his life's work for the last few decades. Though a black American, Daryl has made it his mission to seek out and befriend white supremacists and members of the Ku Klux Klan in trying to find out from them this answer to the question of how can you hate me if you don't even know me? Daryl has been able to punch through their hatred and their systemic racism with a humanizing, personal, intimate relationship. He has collected dozens of robes from people who have turned away from the clan in what he describes as a incalculable ripple effect. His approach is controversial to say the least, and while we don't necessarily endorse all of his opinions and viewpoints, we always strive to interview a wide variety of people on this podcast, especially those who, like Daryl, are dedicating their lives to anti-racism work. For more information on what we do endorse as a church, check out our values, differentials, sermons, and blogs through our website at ForefrontNYC.com. And if you want more information on Daryl and how you can check out the documentary Accidental Courtesy, I've included some information in the show notes. You're, a, you're an author, you're an actor, and you're a lecturer, but even before I came to be exposed to you through the documentary Accidental Courtesy, you were a musician. That's what you did for your, uh, you know, for most of your uh, adult life. But so I guess just first, I want to check in and just see with the the pandemic and obviously not being able to perform in person. How have things been going with you in terms of music? Are you still able to perform, or have you kind of had to find other ways to sort of uh, keep yourself occupied with what's been going on? Yeah, well, uh, music here in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, is uh, is not happening until further notice because people have not been behaving themselves you know, not socially distancing or wearing their masks, and, uh, and things spike up. Uh, this county that I live in and the, count and the bordering county were the worst hit in, uh, in Maryland. Now, you know, about 35, 40 minutes from here in northern Virginia, uh, they have music in, in their places there, but only at, you know, 50% capacity and all kinds of rules and regulations. So I, I get to perform over there a little bit here and there. And I performed in uh, Wyoming and Albuquerque, New Mexico, both in the last uh, month and a half. But uh, other than that, yeah, I mean, my calendar got wiped out for like four or five months. Mm -hmm. But I have been keeping busy. You know, it's, it's definitely an adjustment. I finished uh, writing my second book. I'm just uh, <clears throat> gathering pictures together uh, to put in there. And uh, I started a podcast as well. <laughs> oh, great. So, so, so you're, you're, not, you're not lacking for things to do is what you're saying. Oh uh, yeah, I'm I'm still learning how to you know how to do the podcasting thing and mm -hmm. how to use Zoom and Skype and all that. But uh, I'm learning something. Listen, people who are who are many decades younger than you are also still trying to figure that out. So don't don't feel upset about that by any means. Um, all right. So the the obviously the the primary way that most people who are listening to this and myself included will have known you because of being the feature of Accidental Courtesy, um, the documentary uh, that is based on your, your work and your mission. And it, it's, it's interesting to me that you start that documentary with this idea of your mission was started with this thought of, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? That was sort of the, what, what inspired this mission of you. But in terms of something that kind of pushed you to finally actually get out there and take action, can you point to a, a, like a specific moment or conversation or just kind of a, a buildup of many things that finally culminated in you saying, I'm going to reach out to these clan members and I'm going to try and have a conversation with them. Sure. <clears throat> well, it, it was definitely a process over years and I was prepared and not prepared for it. Uh, I was prepared for it in the regards that as a child, my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I spent a lot of time overseas as an American embassy brat starting in 1961 at the age of three. I'm 62 <laughs> years of age now. And, uh, you know, spent a good 10 years, not not straight, but every two years, you're in a different country, then you come home, you're here for a while in the States, 
and you're back overseas for two years, come home. So total amount of time overseas living was about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was exposed to a multitude of cultures, colors of skin, religions, ethnicities, etc. Uh, starting at a young age you know, during my formative years. So all of that uh, helped, you know, create my perspectives and my personality and my view on, uh, on you know, that was my reality. Uh, overseas, when I was in school, my classmates were from Nigeria, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, France, Germany, Australia, anybody who had an embassy there, Japan, Russia, all of their kids went to the same school. And to me, that was just the norm. That's just the way it was. I didn't think anything else mm -hmm. until I would come back home here to the States and I would either be in an all black school or a black and white school, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. And in the newly integrated, there was not as much diversity mm -hmm. as I had overseas. Right. Today, you, you know, you walk into a city class and uh, and it's, you know, it's very diverse, but that's not the way it was back in the 60s. Sure. So I was you know, living in the future, if you will, when I was overseas, mm -hmm. because that scenario had yet to come here. I was about 10 years ahead of my time. And what's funny is, you know, I remember as a kid watching black and white TV. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, we finally got color. <laughs> uh, and that was a progr you know, that was progress. But in terms of race relations, uh, overseas, I was living in technicolor. And when I come back home, <laughs> I was living in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it was kind of a, a shift. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I had an incident when I was 10 years old when I was uh, marching with the Cub Scouts. And it was, it was an all-white troop. And, you know, they were great to me and all that. Uh, and everybody in the parade was, was great, except for we got to one spot where a few people uh, were not happy and began throwing things at me. And I didn't understand it. I, I just thought, you know, these particular people, it was maybe a group of maybe four or five people, mm -hmm. a couple of kids, couple adults. And I just thought, you know, these people, you know, did not like the scouts. You know, that's why they were hitting me with these things. Uh, until my troop leaders all came running over and, and surrounded me with their own bodies and escorted me out of the danger. You know, nobody else was getting this special treatment. So I realized I'm the only one. So what did I do? What did I say? I didn't do anything. Why are they targeting me? I had no clue because I'd never experienced anything like that. And of course, they weren't telling me. They're just, you know, shushing me and rushing me along, saying, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, just move along, move along, hurry up, it'll be okay. And so then they were answered, you know, the question. And when I got home, my parents, who were not in attendance, asked me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? Mm -hmm. I tripped or something. I told them what happened, and they explained to me what the deal was. And literally, I did not believe them, because my 10-year-old brain could not wrap itself around the idea that someone who had never seen me or never spoken to me uh, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It just made no sense. Mm -hmm. And I did not accept it from my parents. I thought they were lying. And my parents had never lied to me. But my 10-year-old my brain could not process that because I'd already had tons of experiences with white people who looked just like the people on the sidewalk throwing things at me. So it just didn't compute. Mm -hmm. Now, if that, if that had been my first experience with white people, then, you know, I might have registered that. So anyway, I didn't believe them. And within two months of that incident, that same year, 1968, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated on April the 4th. And I remember it very well. And every major city in this country burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. And just like, just like, you know, a few weeks ago here. Mm -hmm. So... I realized this new word that I had learned recently called racism did in fact exist. And it was for real where I didn't believe it before. But while I accepted the fact that my parents had not lied to me that this thing called racism does exist, what I couldn't figure out was why? Why does it exist? Why do people behave this way? So I formed a question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been looking uh, for the answer to that question. So moving along uh, through my teenage years and my adulthood, I began uh, buying books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, just trying to learn where does this ideology come from? Where is it going? How can it be addressed? All my books talk about it, 
but they don't answer the question, at least not satisfactorily to me, as to why it exists. And, uh, you know, I, I never got the answer to my question that way. And later, after I graduated college, I majored in music, and um, I joined a country band. <laughs> and yeah, country had, had made a resurgence. Uh, you know, it had gone away for a while, and now it was on a comeback. Uh, due to this movie called Urban Cowboy. Oh, yeah. With, uh, yeah, with John Travolta and the Mechanical Bull and all the line dances. <laughs> yep. So all, yeah, all the bars that were playing Top 40, they switched their format to country. And uh, I joined this uh, all-white country band that was uh, pretty well established in the area. And I was the only black guy in the band, only black guy usually where wherever we would play. So we played a place in the uh, city of uh, Frederick, Maryland, and it was called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And it was known more or less as an all-white lounge, um, not meaning that blacks could not go in, but they did not feel welcome there. So they chose not to go in, and it was a good choice because you don't want to go somewhere where you're not welcome, especially if alcohol is being served. <laughs> it, doesn't, it, does, it does not make a good combination. Right? <laughs> sure. So uh, anyway, here I was in the place. And uh, I come off the bandstand after the first set, you know, the band's taking a break. And this uh, white guy approached me and, uh, you know, he, he enjoyed the music, he said. We shook hands. And then he said that he had never seen a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I was, um, I was rather surprised. Well, I was not offended, mm -hmm. but I was rather surprised that this guy was, you know, a lot older than me. And certainly he should know the, the black origin of Jerry Lee's style. <laughs> but uh, apparently he didn't. And I informed him, and he did not believe me. And uh, I told him, I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a friend of mine. He's told me himself. Well, he didn't believe that either. <laughs> but he was fascinated enough that uh, he wanted he want me to come back to his table. <laughs> He's going to buy me a drink. So I don't drink alcohol, but I went back to his table and let him buy me a cranberry juice. And he takes his... Uh, his glass, and he clinks my glass and cheers me and says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man and had a drink. And now I'm like totally mystified because you understand my background, right? Mm -hmm. I've been all over the world. I, I've sat down with people of every imaginable color and culture. And I could not imagine somebody older than me had never sat down with a black guy before. Come on. I mean, there are black people all over the place. And he'd never done that. So uh, innocently... I asked, I said, why? And at first he didn't answer me. I asked him again, and he had a buddy sitting next to him who like elbowed him in the side and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And so I said, tell me, because now I'm curious, like, you know, what's this mystery here? And so he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I just simply burst out laughing because now I, I didn't believe him. You know, this is just crazy. <laughs> you know, first he tells me, you know, he doesn't believe Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. And then he's telling me he's a member of the Klan. You know, this is crazy. So I'm laughing, thinking, you know, this is a joke. And he went inside his pocket, produced his wallet, and flipped through it, and handed me his Klan membership card. <laughs> I recognized the Klan symbol on there, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, this thing is for real. I stopped laughing. So I gave <laughs> it back to him. And now I'm sitting here wondering, like, what on earth am I doing sitting at a table with a Klansman. And, and he's, you know, he's being so friendly and talkative and inquisitive about me. So we talked about the Klan and other things. But, uh, and, and he gave me his number and wanted me to call him whenever uh, the band was booked to play at that bar again because he wanted to bring his friends, mm -hmm. meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, huh. to see this black person who played piano like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. So to me, you know, to him, I was a novelty, and he just, you know, wanted to share it. So I'd call him every six weeks, you know, when the band was booked there, and he'd come out, he'd bring his friends, and they'd watch me play, and on the, uh, on the break, I'd make my way over to his table to say hello. Uh, some of them would hang there, because, you know, they were curious, too, wanted to meet me, and the others would see me coming, and they'd get up and run across the room to some other place. Uh, so in other words you know, we want to look at you, but we don't want anything to do with you kind of thing. You know, so that was cool. And I, I quit that band at the end of the year and uh, went on back to playing rock and roll and blues and whatever else. And 
I, you know, I lost track of the guy because I really had no no reason to stay in contact with the Klan, you know. Of course. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was just, you know, seeing him and socializing with him, you know, when I was working in that vicinity. So it dawned on me much later, Daryl, you know, the answer to the question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, fell right into your lap and you didn't even realize it. Who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has more than a hundred year history of practicing hating people who don't look like them and who do not believe as they believe. Get back in touch with that guy, get him to fix you up, connect you, introduce you to the Klan leader for the state and uh, interview that guy, start writing a book, travel up north, go down south, go to the Midwest, go to the West, and interview different Klan leaders and our members and write a book. Because like I said, I have every book written on the Klan pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I've read them all. And they all, except for two, were written by white authors. So uh, I wanted my book to be firsthand, right? I'm going to sit down with my prospective lynchers and ask them, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So that's how that whole journey got started. You are walking into a situation where even if they don't know you individually, you know that this person immediately has a bias, perhaps even a hatred towards you. Hatred, at least of you, was relatively new to you, at least in regards to some people who were kind of brought up um, in America, confronted with and, and living under racist systems. Did you find that that kind of helped your mentality going into it? Or, 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 or was there legitimate fear and uncertainty of like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm, I'm trying anyway? Yeah, definitely the former. Uh, my, my growing up experience is what probably enabled me to go in and, uh, and have these conversations without fear. I just viewed the Klan as just another culture. And I'd seen cultures all over the world. Between traveling with my, my parents as a child and traveling now as an adult musician performing all over the world, if you combine those two sets of travels together, I have been in a total, as of now, 57 different countries on six continents. So I've been exposed to a multitude of colors, races, ethnicities, cultures, religions, you know, you name it, I've seen it. And uh, all of that has helped shape my perspectives, especially as a child, you know, during your formative years, you're absorbing everything that you see. And so I just viewed the Klan as another culture. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think you hit it right on the head. You know, had I grown up here in my own country, I would have known what racism was. And um, I probably would have stayed as far away from those people uh, as possible, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and people you know, often ask me, uh, well, how come your parents didn't tell you anything about that? Uh, you know, how come they didn't prepare you for that? Well, you know, at first... I was kind of curious myself, like, you know, how come I didn't know about this stuff? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, it exists all over the place, you know, here in this country. Uh, and and I had no clue. And, and, and why didn't my parents prepare me for it? Because they prepared me for everything else. And then the more I think about it, it's probably a, a better thing that they did not. You know, they shielded me from it because in the environment in which I was growing up, most of my formative years, I had no reason to know anything about that. You know, uh, we, I got along with kids from Europe, from South America, Australia, every continent on the face of this earth. You know, I, I had no reason to know about it. And, and think about it this way. If, if my parents had told me this at that young of an age about, about this, it might have predisposed me or prejudiced me to every time I see a white person, I'm going to be wondering, you know, does this person not like me? And maybe I'd form some kind of animus or bias against those people simply because of what my father told me, even though every white person I would meet would not necessarily be a racist, mm -hmm. but it might be in the back of my mind. You know, maybe I can't trust this person. I got to proceed cautiously. So perhaps, you know, it was a good thing they didn't do that to me to make me, you know, pre have a, have, have a predisposition to, uh, to bias. But, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time is uh, by Mark Twain, and it's called The Travel Quote. 
And I tell you what, Mark Twain hit it right on the head. <laughs> Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. You know, and it's very unfortunate that uh, the majority of Americans do not travel. They don't travel. Less than uh, 50% of us even have passports. Mm. Uh, my father spoke nine languages, nine languages wow. fluently. Mm. He just had a, you know, an, an, uh, a, uh, a knack for it, you know? Anyway, uh, so that, all that, you know, growing up with that kind of thing, I think enabled me to go in with a much uh, broader sense of who I am and who they are uh, and not be pre predisposed to, uh, to that kind of thing, which enabled me to, to, to do that. Another thing is this. We have to learn how to listen to one another and have conversations with each other. We spend too much time in this country talking about the other person or talking at the other person or talking past the other person. We need to learn how to speak with the other person. And that opens up a whole new world. You know, you don't have to travel to do that. You can do it right here in your own home, in your own uh, country. And I find that, you know, if you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, you're gonna find something in common. And if you spend 10 minutes, you'll find even more. So while you might start out here, on opposite ends of the spectrum, the more you talk, you begin closing that gap because you're finding commonality. Mm -hmm. And when you get about right here, you have formed a relationship. It may just be a working relationship or, or an acquaintance relationship or whatever, and you talk some more, now you're, you're heading towards a friendship. Mm -hmm. you, know, you begin to humanize one another and finding more and more in common. And by the time you get here towards that friendship, uh, you have found more in common than you have in contrast. And the trivial things that you have in contrast, such as the color of your skin, or whether you go to a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or a temple, begin to matter less and less. The approach that you're talking about, humanizing people, this individualistic uh, approach, it leads to a, a, a thread later on in the film of, of this idea when you're talking to the, the gentleman from the Southern Poverty Law Center of a a retail versus a wholesale approach when it comes to trying to dismantle um, white supremacy and racism, basically. And he says, you, you've got the, the retail, the kind of individual approach, and they are much more going for a wholesale kind of um, group approach on how to disenfranchise in them. And I'm wondering if you have some some thoughts, because I know there seem to be a little bit of, not combativeness, but sort of at odds in the sense of, it's this way to do it, or it's this way. And it seems like there is room for both approaches, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, he did not like me very much <laughs> and, and and basically had very little respect for me. Hmm. And, he, and even before I met him, uh, he was interviewed uh, for a magazine article, and my name came up, and he had some derogatory things to say hmm. about me even then, uh, before, like I said, before I met, you know, a couple years before I met him. Uh, but that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm used to that. I've been called every name but my own. So you know, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, and, you know, and he, he, he put it, you know, very clear in, you know, in the film. He said, I'm not, I'm not out here to sit down and have coffee with the Klan. I'm out here to destroy them. Mm -hmm. Those were his words. Now, I'm not out to destroy anybody because... You know, you might be able to destroy their bank account, which is what he does. Yes. Uh, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, uh, goes around suing these people, and that's fine. Uh, you know, it, it, it uh, stifles, you know, their ability to purchase things, et cetera, et cetera. And, and perhaps, you know, they can't print up their flyers anymore because they don't have the money to, to print up those flyers and pass them out or whatever. Sure. But, all it, but it does not compel their, their thinking. It just compels their behavior. And then they simply rebrand, and you know, because they can't use that name anymore, United Clans of America or whatever. They just change the name, and they start all over again. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, because furthermore, they they are more invigorated now, because they, you know they've been attacked, and so now they're going to fight back. 
I'd rather, you know, it may take a little longer, but I would rather sit down and, and, and converse with these people and give them reason to think about what they're doing. And some of them do end up changing. And I've proven that. And that will hold a lot longer than trying to make somebody do something, you know, ram something down their throat or hit them in their, in their wallet and things like that. Uh, sure, if they have done something wrong, yes, they do need to be legally punished and held accountable for that. No problem whatsoever for me. Mm -hmm. but, the, but, there are, but there are other ways also to make them see. You know, he, he is a, a punitive uh, person whereby uh, I take more of a, a reformative uh, approach. Mm -hmm. and, and, bo and both are necessary. Both are necessary. It's not one way or the other. Uh, you know, there's a saying, hurt people hurt people. Yes, yes. And so, you know, I, I, I get that. And, you know, and things like that can be forgiven. Um, but, you know, if, if people show remorse and they, and they want to do the right thing or I see potential in them, I'm willing to support them. I'm willing to support uh, them coming, coming to their victims and apologizing and, and trying to make things right. All right. I'm, I'm not going to support somebody who, who has done something and then wants to get away with it and start anew. No. Is there a line in the sense of you you're you're you have a relationship with someone there there are there's even one person in the film that you say like I consider him him a friend he does not consider me a friend right um, Pastor Tom Rob <laughs> yeah a charming individual to say the least uh, yeah yeah I've known him for thirty years <laughs> is there a line for you or a point where you get to where you just kind of think like uh, this isn't working it's not worth it for me to continue with this because even when it comes to addicts uh in people's lives even people will say like if, if it's a family member it's a friend there's a there's a rock bottom there's a point where you have to say you're you're cut off i'm done i'm not dealing with you anymore do you have sort of an equivalency of that or for you is it just kind of you give and give of yourself until until it's well, that's I, it i don't i don't give up on people mm -hmm. um and you know that i i know though i know that there are people on, on any side and all sides who will go to their grave being hateful, racist, and violent. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no changing them whatsoever. We, we know people like that. Uh, however, there are people like that as well, you know, who are willing to sit down and talk with you. And if they are willing to do that, even though they, they have that attitude, there's an opportunity to plant a seed. But the key is, first, you got to plant the seed. And second, you've got to return and water that seed so it will grow and bloom. Um, so I don't give up on those people, but I do realize that some of them will never change. Uh, but as long as they're talking, you know, there's, you know, there's, a, there's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think about it like this. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. They might be disagreeing, you know, and maybe perhaps even raising their voices, but at least they're talking. They're not fighting. It's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. Mm -hmm. So you want to keep the conversation going. There seems to be that there's only one Daryl Davis in this world, um, in the sense of doing the kind of stuff that you are that you are doing. I was watching uh, Accidental Courtesy the other day with my wife, and one of the things that we were talking about was even the question of, can white people do this kind of work? Are we equipped to do so? Because I'm thinking that um, we, you know, we don't have the experience or the perspective that you do that other, you know, black Americans may have. Um, and certainly there is something to be said about, um, when you, when you or someone like you are, uh, is approaching a white supremacist, a Klan member, there's something which is a bit disarming and disorienting when it's like, oh, this, this person wants to engage with me. What's that all about? Um, but when it comes to, uh, a white person kind of doing this kind of work or engaging, there's something within me which wants to think like maybe people are going to be more receptive if an anti-racist message or a message of love and compassion is coming from someone that looks like them. But I mean, I guess, do you think that white people are equipped to do this kind of work? Or like you said, is it just everyone's got different strengths and we have to tackle this in any ways that, that we, that we can, or that is inherent within us basically? Well, I'll put it this way. White people learned this behavior from other white people, okay? Because you were not born uh, with with uh, with racism. It's a, it's a learned uh, behavior, and you learn it from your friends. You learn it from your parents. 
You learn it from the people in, in your environment, you know? So what can be learned can be unlearned. So those people who taught it can also unteach it. It may take a little bit longer, but it can be done. And, and yes, I mean, I, I have certain, or, or I, black people, have certain experiences that, uh, that whites have never felt, have never dealt with. But then again, you have certain experiences, you know, that I've never felt and dealt with, such as white privilege, for example. And, and a lot of people don't even realize they have it because it's just something. Now, that is something that you're born with. Yes. OK, the, you know, the behavior is, you know, is not the behavior is learned. But 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 the but the ability to get away with the behavior has always been there. it's always <laughs> been there. So, um, you know, when we when you find a white person who who recognizes what he or she has, then nobody can share it better than them to, to point it out to someone else. Because, you know, I, I, I've not been to the places that white privilege would get me in. I've not gone through those doors because they've always been shut for me. Mm-hmm. You know, whereby you can walk in those doors, you know what's behind the door. I can only guess what's behind the door. You know, you know, we, you know we're, we're, we're taught as, as kids. And I'm sure you heard the same, you know, uh, phrases that I did, even though I'm much older than you are. Uh, a tiger does not change its stripes. Mm-hmm. A leopard does not change its spots. Mm-hmm. You know, those are old, old adages you know, that even our grandparents heard as kids. And and so we grow up just thinking that, like, okay, well, why would a Klansman change his robe and hood? You know, that's how they are. But here's the thing. The tiger and leopard were born with their, with their spots and stripes. The Klansman was not born with his robe and hood. You know, he learned that from mm-hmm. somewhere, that racism. So therefore, you know, that Robin Hood can be removed where the toy, the stripes and, and spots cannot. Mm-hmm. Now, when when the in your experience, when the Robin Hood has been removed, when you've when you've had a relationship with these people that have given up their robes and, and you know, that specifically to you or just even in general, have you found there to be sort of a ripple effect where that that change in that one person goes beyond just that one person? Because I think that's one of the critiques that maybe people have against you is like, I mean, we saw with a. Um, Tariq in the film where he says he's kind of incredulous when he says you only have 25 robes you've been doing this since 1990 and you only have 25 but mm-hmm. there, there's got to be more than just like well you saved one soul and that's it there there has to be more to it than that oh absolutely you know well, when when one person changes it changes a generation especially with a leader and there have been many leaders that have that have renounced that ideology mm-hmm. since coming to know me and what you know? What makes a good leader? The number of followers, and and people join these things because they're followers. You know, they want to follow something. They want to belong to something, and so they follow that leader. And when the leader says something is wrong here, they they accept it and they follow that direction. Of course, you know there have been some some hardcore people who who then attack the leader anonymously and and call him a sellout. And these are people who followed him before. And now all of a sudden he's become brainwashed. He's become, you know, a race traitor. He's become everything, you know, that, that he taught them to hate. And now one thing to your, to your disadvantage uh, in talking with people like that, um, and, you know, and you don't have to go on the front lines and go to a Klan rally. You know, uh, not, not everybody who's, a race, who's racist, you know, belongs to the Klan or the neo-Nazis. You know, they're just, just regular, you know, people who, who, who like, you know, my best friend is black. But I don't want him marrying my sister, kind of, you know, kind of thing. Sure. And they have, you know, and they have nothing to do with the Klan. You know, they, mm. they can't stand the Klan, and they, and they say, you know, they're not racist. Uh, where you're at a disadvantage. People, people who are white supremacists, or white nationalists. Um, let's say, you know, you said you're married. Let's say you were married to a black a black woman. They would hate you more than the black than, than your black wife mm-hmm. because you sold out your race. You had all this going going for you, and you have defiled your race, uh, and that's the same way black supremacists feel about black people, you know. And, and you saw you saw that in the movie. Mm-hmm. So you know that you know they have that in common. Um, it's it's kind of a a strange alliance, but but uh, but black supremacists and white supremacists get along fine with each other, because they both believe in purity of the races, no miscegenation. 
that's a, that's a good segue to get into uh, the the next big question I wanted to talk to you about because you bring up this idea or, or these terms of um, sellout. Those accusations were hurled against you in the film. Um, there's a segment when you are you're sitting down with a uh, with black activists um, in Baltimore, specifically Kwame Rose, uh, Tariq Touré, and and J C Falk, and there is a theme that touches on this reality of a of a generational divide, whereas they were very much uh, coming from and speaking for um, the experience of young black people that are they're tired of of you know trying to be understood and try and tired of trying to explain themselves and their situation to people, and there's there's an anger because they were born and raised in a society in an environment which is racist and oppressive to them. Um, and I'm 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 curious as to are you finding that when it comes to a younger generation of activists, are they less receptive to your message? Is it harder for you to kind of um, connect with a younger audience, or or does it really kind of depend on you know that retail approach basically? Okay, uh, I w I would disagree with with uh, with your characterization of them speaking for a younger audience. Okay, uh, they were speaking for themselves, mm -hmm. and for them at age twenty one, which he was in the movie, mm -hmm. uh, to be tired of anything is is a crock of bull spit. Uh, how can you be tw tired at age twenty one? You haven't even lived yet. You have not, you know, I'm, I'm age 60. I was, uh, what I was, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm age 62. I was 58 when, uh, when he, when he was, when he was, uh, 21 or whatever hmm. in the movie. Uh, I've lived, uh, 30 some years, 36 years longer than he has. Uh, I'm not tired. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm still putting up with it. I don't tolerate it. I'm still fighting, but, but to be tired at age 21 is nonsense. And he, and he's speaking for himself. Um, they, you know, that, that was a, uh, Baltimore chapter mm -hmm. of, uh, of Black Lives Matter. And I have had five various chapters around the country that have contacted me and said, Hey, you know, these are young black people. I said, Hey, you know, do you give workshops? Can you teach us how to do what you do? Things like that. And these are young black people. Mm -hmm. So it depends upon the individuals. And so uh, I don't want to paint uh, Black Lives Matter with a broad brush. Sure, but the, but there are some issues uh, that you know that I that I think um, you know do not deserve support, and some that that do. Uh, first of all, what people need to understand is uh, Black Lives Matter is not an organization. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a movement. It, it is a decentralized uh, movement, and and that's that's a problem. I think it's a problem. Now the founders, my understanding is intentionally did not want it to be a centralized organization. And that's why we have about 90 different factions around the country. And unfortunately, many of them are not on the same page. So you've got all these different things going on, and nobody's on the same page. It's like too many chefs in the kitchen trying to do this same recipe, um, unlike, say, the NAACP or the Red Cross or the Boy Scouts of America, which are all centralized organizations with one president, and policy is created right here at headquarters and disseminated to all the chapters around the country so everybody is on the same page. Mm -hmm. Just like a, bi a Big Mac in Los Angeles tastes the same as a Big Mac in New York City. You know, it's, it's centralized. Um, and, and that way it's more unified, uh, a lot stronger. But what happens is the media, let's say, you know, the, the, uh, the Brooklyn, New York chapter of Black Lives Matter is doing something good. You know, they're working positively with, uh, with legislators and so forth and so on, trying to get some, some things accomplished, and it's working. But then the uh, Piscataway, New Jersey chapter of, uh, of BLM is doing something stupid. You know, they're tearing up stuff and, and spraying stuff, you know, their, their initials all over the place. Uh, the, the media simply reports uh, Black Lives Matter did this. You know, they don't say the Piscataway chapter mm -hmm. or the New York chapter. You know, so they just paint a broad brush. So whatever negativity, you know, one chapter is doing uh, transfers to the other chapter, and that's not good. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's like it's like how the how the Klan paints uh, black groups: the NAACP, the Black Panthers, the uh, uh, SPLC, Southern Poverty, not SPLC, the S, uh, 
uh, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, CORE, C-O-R-E, Congress on Racial Equality, all these different organizations, uh, they just call them all, you know, one thing. They think the Black Panthers and the NAACP are the same group, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's not. Yes, they all are working for the advancement of black people, but they all have different agendas. And so, uh, so, so do these chapters of Black Lives Matter. And so it's, it's very hard to support because you don't know, uh, you know, what are you supporting? You know, when you lend your name to it, are you supporting the ones who go out there and tear up the town? Or are you supporting the ones who are trying to, you know, do things uh, legitimately? It's important to also note to, to listeners, if you've seen this documentary, that uh, you and Kwame have also sensed the film connected and have been able to kind of work together and find some common ground. I think you've you both admitted in, in uh, that it would have been beneficial to have maybe met and talked beforehand before the cameras kind of started rolling. Um, well, not only Kwame and I, uh, also the older guy, JC and I, had gotten together. <laughs> and, and, and he had even begun working on some things together. And then he couldn't handle it. He fell off the wagon again mm -hmm. and revert and reverted back to to the person he was uh, in the film. Um, but uh, but but Kwame and I, as far as I know, are, are are still very cool. And even if you can't necessarily relate to um, a person like Kwame who who has a fair amount of of rage and anger inside him, do you at least kind of see the validity in in his story and in his feeling what he is feeling? Um, no, and I'll tell you why. Um, I have a lot of rage and anger in me because I've been experiencing that and seeing that a lot longer than he has. And, and I've been all over this country. I've performed in 49 of the 50 states. Uh, and I, I, I've seen it. And I know where, uh, where people can get along. And I've seen it, and I don't think he's seen that. And I know where they can't get along. Have I had all the experiences that he has had? Um, no, I've, I haven't had those. I don't. I don't live in his in his neighborhood, um, but I've had broader experiences than he than he has had for sure. I've lived thirty six years longer, and I've been a lot further than he has. Um, that does not make me a better person by any means. I'm not saying that. It just it, it makes me a person with a wider perspective and wider breadth of experiences. And I know what can work and what can't work. And you will notice in the film, he had made the statement twice. And mm -hmm. that, well, um, what you saw in the film was only about eight minutes long. Yeah. That scene went on for about an hour. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it almost became, became physical. All right. But it was important to me that that scene remain in the movie. Because I, you know, nobody has a has a monopoly on racism. It has to be fought on all sides. Mm -hmm. And you know, we have our problems. They have their problems. Uh, it's not just a white thing. It's also a black thing, etc. And it all has to be addressed. So it's important that people know that and not sugarcoat anything. The the pro, you know, the things that Kwame uh, faces are real. They are real. Uh, you know, the the racism that that's been perpetrated upon him. No question is real, but there are, in my opinion, there are there are different ways to address it. Uh, he he addresses it by saying a white supremacist cannot change. He said that twice mm -hmm. in that eight minute segment. Uh, that is false. I know that to be false because I've seen it. I have the robes and hoods to prove it. Where there's one robe and hood, or at the time twenty five, or presently fifty four, fifty seven that I have now, whatever, um, just one. Uh, has uh, I know I know a per one person has changed. So if he does not think a white supremacist can change, then why is he wasting his time marching up and down with a bullhorn in front of the Baltimore City Police Department, which he considers to be a bunch of white supremacists in, on the Baltimore City Police Force? If white supremacists can't change, then isn't he wasting his time out there? And then by saying it's not a black person's job, it's not my job, to teach white people how to treat us. Well, why is he marching in front of the police trying to teach them how to treat us? I have a police officer's uniform. You saw that in the, in the movie. And the guy was the grand dragon of the Klan. He tried to bomb a synagogue. He tried to murder two people with a shotgun. And he got out. That was a white supremacist. I'm wondering about the, the responses from some people who might have heard. Like, So you mentioned the police officer's uniform that we see in the film um, who 
gave up his uniform and, and kind of reformed his ways, but also there were things that he did which were which also had legal repercussions and i guess the, the you know people could say like yeah but he still did these things and that doesn't and turning in a robe doesn't necessarily absolve them of crimes and i, I guess it kind of comes back to this idea of whose whose job is it to forgive and it's not an answer that i that i know of and or maybe not even one that i'm searching for just this rhetorical question of whose job is it at the end of the day to forgive these people for what they've done yeah i mean you know, we all have to ask uh, forgiveness ultimately. Mm-hmm. You know, well, when 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 judgment day comes, but it, but in the meantime, those people, you know, for for whom you've hurt, and um, and I, I I have arranged for people to go and meet uh, the people that they have uh, that they have injured or hurt. I've done that with the with the police officer mm-hmm. and and with the first uh, imperial wizard uh, that 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 left. And, and and a few others, uh, I, I I have brought those people together. Um, so you know that's up to them. You know if they want to if they want to forgive him or, or or not. But at least you know if they're willing to make that effort, I will try to connect them. And then and then there are those also, um, like for example, you saw Scott Shepard in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy was a hardcore, a hater. Um, Byron De La Beckwith, who's the man who, uh, the Klansman from Mississippi, who murdered uh, Medgar Evers. Mm-hmm. That was Scott's godfather. The, the guys that, that murdered the three civil rights workers in Mississippi, for which the movie Mississippi Burning was made. Mm-hmm. He knows, he, he, he knew those people personally. He comes out with me and, uh, and shares my stage with me and lectures against his former organization, the Ku Klux Klan. And there are others, uh, Jeff, okay, Jeff Scoop, I don't know if you knew this or not, the 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 uh, the, the commander of the National Socialist Movement, right. the neo-Nazi, mm-hmm. Dr. Elvis and all that. Okay, uh, he's he's now out of that movement, wow. and um, yeah, and he attributes uh, a lot of it to myself and to a uh, Muslim uh, female film uh, filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker named Dia Khan, mm-hmm. great lady, great. Uh, if you check out her movie uh, White Right, amazing movie that she made. Um, the things that she said to him got him thinking. Uh, some of the incidents that I related got him thinking. And now Jeff comes out with me as well and oh. shares my stage and talks against, um, you know, white supremacy and, and talks to p- p- members still in his organization trying to pull them out and prevent others from joining. When, um, when these people uh, leave, you know, some of them leave quietly uh, because there is a, you know, uh, a chance that there can be retaliation mm-hmm. and retribution. I, I commend those people who come out and then come out on stage and speak out against uh, these things and, and, and do their best to try to prevent others from joining. You know, and, and, and let me say this, too, that I don't think um, people understand, especially those uh, in, in the Baltimore chapter there, um, like I said, you know, they don't, they don't think it's their, their, uh, their place to, 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 to educate white people. It's all our places. And, and in fact, they, they both were doing it. They both were doing it because, uh, you know, uh, JC holds these meetings with nothing but white people that, uh, that he talks to and, and teaches them about slavery and, and the effects and the after effects and all that kind of stuff. Well, you're teaching white people. You know, I mean, so what, what's the difference between whether you're teaching regular white people or the KKK or the police? They're still white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't, don't you know, that, that's like, I hate to use the pun, the kettle calling the pot black or whatever. You know, but, <laughs> right. uh, you know when you accuse me of teaching somebody something, I'm wasting my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. We need that collective voice. And the only way you're going to get that collective voice is to teach them. And what do I mean by the collective voice? I'm talking about black people and white people working together. Look at this thing scientifically. Look at it. Uh, observe what we see and what, and what the end result was. All right? Black people did not put Barack Obama in the White House. White people put Barack Obama in the White House. All right. Black people only make up 12 percent 
of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. And not all 12% are eligible to vote. Some are not old enough. Some are not registered. Some are felons. So, you know, not all 12% are eligible to vote. Mm -hmm. But even if all 12% could vote, including babies could vote, that still would not be enough mm -hmm. to put that man in the White House without a certain amount of the white vote adding into it, right? So 20 years ago, Barack Obama never could have won the White House because the white attitude was not there yet to say, um, I want to see a black man in the White House or I don't care if a black man wins the presidency. By 2008, there were enough white people whose attitude was at a point where, you know what? doesn't matter that he's black. I like, I like his policies. Check. He has my vote. That there, was, there were enough of those kind of people who were willing to do that. And that's why he won in 2008. So it was that collective of white people and black people together that got him in the White House. And that turned, turned that page in our history books. All right. Now, white people have always been involved in our civil rights. Uh, even dating back to uh, Rosa Parks in 1955 with the bus boycott, uh, there was a minimal number of white people. And on through the 60s with uh, Dr. King, there were still white people. But never before have we seen this many white people involved with our protests in the aftermath of George Floyd. And so what's the difference between the protests before and the ones now. The ones before, the establishment, and when I say the establishment, that's a polite way of saying the white powers that be, mm -hmm. all right? They, they, they see those protests, and they see a sea of black people, tens of thousands, you know, marching up and down the streets and, and saying, no justice, no peace, enough's enough. You know, we want to be treated equally on and on. And what does the establishment do? They shut their ears. They don't want to hear us. Mm -hmm. They shut us down. All right? Now, today, that same establishment, what do they see? They see a sea of people who look just like them down there on the streets with the black people. And so now they're pulling out their earplugs or they're putting in their hearing aids and they're listening. And things are changing a lot faster. Never before have we seen cops get arrested and charged within a week and fired. Before, if they were charged, if they were fired, it took months, months, if at all. Today is happening, boom, 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 all right? And while these protests were geared predominantly towards the police as a result of George Floyd, and the hundreds of George Floyds that came before this particular one, this particular George Floyd was the straw that broke the camel's back and that got all the white people on board, all right? We're seeing, while, while those protests were geared towards the police, it had a major ripple effect that we've never seen before. The ripple effect that we're seeing now, NASCAR banning the Confederate flag, um, uh, legal orders to take to remove certain statues, uh, the state of Mississippi, of all places, taking out its Confederate uh, flag, mm -hmm. out of its flag, um, food labels changing their, their, their branding logos, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's. Wow, that was never expected. You know, all all uh, uh, as a result of this police protest, that was a ripple effect. What's the difference? The difference is, if you look at the protests now, compared to the ones in the past, it's that collective voice. It's that same collective voice that put a black man in the White House. That same collective voice is what's causing this page to turn and those, and the, and those ripple effects to happen. And that's what we need to focus on. We should not be focusing on a oh, white supremacist can't change. It's not my job to teach white people, on and on and on. The more we get on board and the more we build that collective voice, the more change we're going to see. You've already touched upon this a little bit, especially in that last answer, but to kind of 
wrap up, uh, I want to bring up this idea of at the end of the documentary, there's kind of this little coda um, in which you are um, you're talking after the, the election and you're saying that um, after the election in 2016, you're actually optimistic for the future. And it's, it's not because, um, if any listeners haven't seen it, it's not because uh, Daryl was excited that President Trump was nominated, but, he's, but it's because of this idea of now people who are racist white supremacist supporters of him are now kind of making themselves public and, we, and, and there's going to be more transparency. We know where, where the problem lies and what to tackle. I said, and, and I still maintain it today, I said that back in 2016, I said Donald Trump is the best thing that happened to this country. And I, I did not support him, and I said he's breaking the bone of this country, the backbone of this country. That's exactly what he's doing. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've never seen the country in, in this, this shape before. But you know what? Uh, it's not being done by any intelligent design of his. So I don't think he has that kind of intelligence. But he's doing it, and people are responding. And because these conversations have been taboo for so long, nobody wants to, wants to have them. Uh, and now we're having more conversations on, on race. And this is what needs to happen. It should have happened decades ago. Donald Trump is not to blame for racism. He did not invent it. Neither did Barack Obama. Some people blamed it on Barack Obama, too. You know, he didn't invent it either. And, you know, you, you got to go all the way back to George Washington or somebody, you know. I mean, I'm not saying they invented it, but it, it, it's been around since then. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we can't put the blame on it, but we can say that he has stoked the fires of it for sure. And, and as a result, people are having to wake up and address issues that they were a little, a little too comfortable with. And, and one of the things that, that uh, I'll share with you that is not being talked about in the media, even though they know, is the angst that is coming 22 years from now. This is what a lot of the, this is what's driving a lot of, um, of white supremacy today. Um, the year 2042, all right? This country was built on a two-tier society, all right? White supremacy and slavery. When I was a kid, the black population here in the United States was 12%. Uh, whites were around 84, 86%. Uh, Asians were like 4%, Hispanics 2 and 3%, Native Americans 1%. Today, uh, we remain at 12%, almost 13%. Hispanics have gone to like 17 point something percent. So if you take just 12% black and 17% Hispanic, that right there is 29% non-white. And is if, if you, you know, the census is taken every 10 years, mm -hmm. go on Google and do your own little, little research and, and check the census every 10 years. You're gonna see this happening. And it's well predicted that by 2042, 22 years from now, this country will be 50-50, 50% white, 50% non-white. The non-white includes blacks, Asians, anything but, but white, right. right? And between 2045 and 2050, it's gonna shift for the first time in the history of this country, white people will be a minority. And while there are plenty, plenty of white people who welcome that idea, say, hey, you know, I don't have a problem with that. You know, bring it on, I'm happy. There is also a, a percentage who do not want that to happen. Because when you have been on the throne of power for so long, you don't want to get off, you know? Nobody wants, wants to abdicate the throne, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and give up power. So now they're seeing those throne legs being whittled down and their butts are being lowered to the level of the inferior people because they were the superior people before, right? And so they're becoming very, um, disconcerted and unhinged by it. And that's why you're seeing all these groups pop up and, and doing all this recruiting. Come join us. We're going to take our country back. We're going to build that wall. We're going to make America great again, on and on and on. So that you, because you're seeing the color of their landscape change, whereby before it was predominantly white. And now everywhere they turn, there's somebody who does not look like them. But this optimism that you express at the end of the film you still hang on to it in the sense of you believe the change when it comes to uh, racial demographics is inevitable and these 
lone wolves are the extremist groups that seem to be popping up is basically just this is a swan song until eventually they're just all kind of wiped off the the, uh, the, the map. It's going it's going to get worse before it gets better. But yes, absolutely, I hang on to that hope. Yeah, no question about it, because you're seeing that collective voice happen, and and there's going to be you know, that collective voice is going to build if we treat it right. You know, if we do the right thing, that collective voice will will build. And 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 route out, you know the uh, the vermin, so to speak. You know what? If you if if you don't have hope, then what do you have? <laughs> well, Daryl, thank you so much for uh, for this conversation for joining me tonight. This was uh, an immensely edifying conversation, and I'm I'm uh, the the documentary and your mission. It's uh, challenging, it's thought provoking, but it's also in many ways inspirational. So I want to thank you for for the work that you do and for putting that in the world for other people to engage with as well. Well, thank you, you know, for, for allowing us to have this conversation. Like I said before, a lot of people, you know, don't want to do that or they're afraid to do it or, you know, they're, you know, they, they want to have it, but they don't do it because they might, they might lose friends or whatever else, you know. So I really appreciate your courage and your boldness and your desire to, uh, to put out this information and, uh, and hopefully, you know, make this a better, a better world for everybody.